Hello, hello everyone, it's Britt, the Petite Polymath. It's been a day, and so I figured why don't I take some time and sort of disconnect by talking about a book. Today is Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. Okay, folks. So, I'm on call this week. Um, I don't know about you, but I am feeling... How did I describe it to a friend? Sort of world-weary. I have this um, peace lily that a dear friend left for me as a gift, and it's kind of drooping, and I kind of feel that that is what I feel like on the inside. For the record, um, if you hear my dishwasher in the background, I'm sorry. Hopefully that will not be too distracting, and hopefully you can't hear it at all, and I just overshared. Um, <clears throat> at any rate, I decided, well, I finished this book on Monday and I need to talk about it because I really enjoyed it. And before I get into it, I just want to disclaim with the fact that there will most likely be spoilers of some sort. I'll try not to do that, but possibly. It, it might just be disjointed and you won't really know all the things happening. That, that's what I'm going for. Okay, so Kylie Reed. I believe we are the same age. This is her debut novel. She is from Los Angeles. She lives in Philadelphia. For those who don't know, I lived in Philadelphia for four years. It still has my heart in many ways. Um, I left behind lots of people I love, and it's a city that's very special to me, and I would go back and visit in a heartbeat. And, I mean, you know, I could live there. So, um, such a fun age set in Philadelphia right now, well not now in the sense of COVID land, but pre-COVID, you know, mid-2000s. Um, the protagonist is a young black woman named Amira. She is a graduate of Temple University and she's 25 and doesn't know what she wants to do when she grows up. And that's a source of stress for her and her family. Um, I think she's one of maybe the first of her gener of her family to actually, like, of the siblings, they all have gone to school because, of course, their parents, you know, didn't have the same opportunities. And so this is kind of the first generation of being able to start from the, from the bottom and have, like, no other responsibilities. They don't have a spouse or a child to take care of, so the possibilities are endless. You can be whatever you want to be, except that Amira can't really figure that out. She's got a little posse of fellow young lady friends, and they are living it up in Philly, which for those of us who spent our mid-twenties in that city, with Center City Sips and Laitage and all of the um, hipster and bro and, like, you know, young adult life that the city has to offer, um, it's a pretty fun place to be in your mid-twenties. Um, so in order to make money, Amira ends up becoming a nanny for a wealthy, or at least upper middle class, white family. They live right on the edge of Rittenhouse Square, and the name of the woman is Alix. Um, she's married, she has a daughter named Briar, and Briar is Emira's, um, you know, what's the word? There's a word for that, and I just blanked on it, charge her charge. So that's who Amira takes care of. And Amira actually has a very deep love for Briar, a deep affection. Briar's kind of quirky, and that's the best kind of little kid. Precocious and sweet and a little awkward. And so Amira kind of gets pulled into this family. 
um, because of taking care of her. Now, Alix is, in some ways, kind of a co-protagonist. Uh, she grew up in the, on the main line, new rich family, like the family, you know, won money in a lawsuit. They were kind of poor white folk. And then they hit it big um, and came into a lot of money. And then because of that, started really living it up uh, as Alex, as she was called back then, um, was starting junior high or high school. She lived on the main line for people in Philly who are familiar with the suburbs outside of Philadelphia proper. And something happens in her last year of, of high school. She tries to put it behind her. She's mortified by it, kind of haunted by it, and then moves to New York and kind of starts her life afresh, makes her posse of young women friends. They're all kind of go-getting, you know, professional women. But they also have children or are married or going through a divorce, any of the above. And they are probably about a decade older than, than Amira. So, haha, they're my age. And boy, is that fun to read this thinking, yeah, this, this protagonist is definitely a child. And the other one, I like, I get her in many ways. So something happens um, when Amira is taking care of Briar. Um, and this causes Amira's past to cross with a handsome stranger. What is his connection to Alex or Alix? Who knows? You have to read the book to find out. The idea, though, is that this handsome stranger is white. And he's also the same age as Alix. So he's in his mid-30s. And he's single, no kids, never been married. Um, middle class, I would say. And so their worlds kind of collide. And what is interesting about this novel is it brings up the issues of things like class and money. It also brings up the tensions between class and race. So being poor and white, being poor and black versus rich and black and rich and white and how you can have these commonalities in your class that you may not have in your race and how sometimes the class might matter more or the race might matter more. In addition, things going viral and in the world of social media, um, you know, saviors and uh, people canceling people and you know, the kind of, what's the word, um, almost like the, the trial by public opinion of, of any person for doing something inappropriate out in public, you know, whether it's the quote unquote Karens that we see calling the cops on black people, which has come up a lot today, um, you know, the citizens arrest people like George Zimmerman, who, you know, may he never have peace until he becomes a better human, um, who take it upon themselves to police people when they have no authority to do so and are just acting on their own assumptions. Uh, so this idea of, of how a split-second situation and how someone reacts can totally change their life. And the fact that this experience can then live on perpetuity on the internet. And every time you get Googled, this can come up as a reminder of that you know two-minute interaction that you had with a jerk at a store or in the parking lot when they assumed the worst of you. And you can't really get away from that, right? You might end up on Ellen because of it, for all you know. Um, oh yeah, I guess she's going through a hard time right now. I, I've been seeing the news, but I'm not fully aware of everything, which makes me sad because 
from what I know of Ellen, she seems lovely, but uh, toxic work cultures are uh, something definitely being uncovered these days. Uh, moving on back to the story. Um, another theme is this idea of, and I've talked about it with friends, especially in this current climate, of individual racism versus systemic racism. These ideas of people trying to one-up each other on how woke they are <laughs> while still missing the point. A lot of times just like being a decent human being and uh, cognizant of how you'd want to be treated and engaged with is way more simple than having to know a bunch of, you know, what's the word, particular catchphrases, terminology, critical race theory, say all the right things, watch all the right films, read all the right books, listen to all the right podcasts. If you would just, for a moment, understand the world is broken and unfair, and that humans like to stratify themselves based on anything that can separate them for their own benefit, and that these systems can become entrenched, and then if you're on the winning side, even if you're not one of these people who builds the system, you can benefit from them, and you seek to then understand someone who the system is gamed against, you seek to seek to understand them and just be decent, <laughs> we would get a lot farther than people knowing all the right things to say and using these mental acrobat acrobatics to keep themselves out of being in the hot seat. And that's a lot of what you see um, in such a fun age. Of course, not really spoiling some things, it's obvious that Amira and the handsome stranger uh, known as Kelly, end up in a romantic relationship. And so the tensions and difficulties that can sometimes arise in interracial romantic relationships, probably also still in friendship, but a little bit more so in, in, in romantic ones, comes up just because they don't really know how to have these conversations candidly. So I'm going to read a little excerpt, and I don't think I'm going to spoil it. Amira and Kelly talked about race very little because it always seemed like they were doing it already. When she really considered a life with him, a real life, a joint bank account, emergency contact, both names on the lease life, Amira almost wanted to roll her eyes and ask, are we really going to do this? How are you going to tell your parents? If I'd walked in here when they were still on the screen, how would you have introduced me? Are you going to take our son to get his hair done? Who's going to teach him that it doesn't matter what his friends do, that he can't stand too close to white women when he's on the train or in an elevator, that he should slowly and noticeably put his keys on the roof as soon as he gets pulled over, or that there are times our daughter should stand up for herself and times to pretend it was a joke that she didn't quite catch, or that when white people compliment her, she's so professional, she's always on time, it doesn't always feel good because sometimes people are going to be surprised by the fact that she showed up rather than the fact that she had something to say when she did. Now that, I think, is an excerpt that I think hits home. If you are um, a black American, I always can speak about that because that's what I know. There are these things in the back of your head that you just can't help but wonder, particularly when she says, you know, how are you going to tell your parents? Or um, how are you going to be able to navigate these, com these complex discussions with our children? Which, you know, shouldn't scare people off. It just should mean 
we have to have these conversations. You know, I think uh, growing up the way I did, it was very common for people to say, oh, you know, it's just so hard for the children, you know, which I just roll my eyes. It's only hard for the children if, if you all don't get it together. But don't put this on kids. It's hard to be a kid in general. It's hard to be a human, <laughs> much less a small one trying to navigate the world with adults that do not have their stuff together. So these ideas of having to have candid conversations about uncomfortable discussions or uncomfortable topics, rather, comes up quite a bit. And there's a lot of not talking um, throughout, throughout the novel. So then there is this idea, I think I said before, of the, of the social media savior or the social justice savior. But this concept of like being the white savior comes up quite a bit because, you know, as much as being an actually belligerent, cruel person who thinks you're better than someone and it's in the front of your mind, the worst thing I would say is thinking you're better in a way that you aren't fully aware of, which then lends you or leads you down a path of pity and, I don't know, what's the term? I'll just speak around it. Having to make way for someone because they can't do it on their own. Thinking that they can't make their own way. Thinking that someone is incapable of knowing or doing something and having to make allowances for them, which you would not do if you thought the person was your equal. And that is the definition, in my mind at least, of what that savior complex is. That, you know, when we talk in political terms, it's often couched on the left. But I don't think that that necessarily is the case. Um, I think that whenever you see people who don't look like you feeling the need to go and help people who don't look like them, or who have way less than them, but then they can't even talk to their own peers, who look like them or who don't look like them. I'm now speaking in lots of like, you know, confusing uh, language here. But I think that this idea that, and I remember uh, this came up in the Malcolm X bio, that Malcolm X said that he felt in his experience that white people were there when he was down, but they would never want him to get up. Because when he gets up and he has to make eye contact and they're on the same level, that's where the discomfort kicks in. And so there's kind of this needing to take care of Amira by both Kelly and Alix that is really infuriating if you're reading the novel um, and you're paying attention to that. So that's another, another way in which superiority can rear its head. And, you know, people think that they're being excused by their one black friend that they have in their circle. You know, I know a black person is always a bad idea to, of something to say when someone calls you out on a behavior. You should never start with your track record of what you've done or who you know, because that's not, the point is, is that has nothing to do with the fact that you still have a blind spot or that you still miss the point because that's not your lived experience. So you're knowing one person, which is an N of one out of how many people, behooves you to just shut up and listen to someone and seek to understand where they're coming from. No one wants to know what you wrote or who you read or who your friend is. And so, I really enjoyed Such a Fun Age because I don't think I've ever read a book from this perspective before. I've been reading lots of black women authors this last year, and it has been lots of fun. 
um, particularly reading more contemporary fiction, which is not usually what I had done in the past, it has been life-giving to kind of have myself mirrored because so much of my, you know, my life, that wasn't the case. I mean, I saw the nerdy person in the mirror or the Christian or the person who loved to travel, but all of the, the complexities of navigating the life I have to see that reflected has been really um, healing, I think. Especially in the midst of a time where we're just <laughs> grasping for any sort of normalcy, really wanting all this to be over, and feeling a bit in a funk. Can I just be real? Kind of in a funk. Hoping that uh, this doesn't last forever. The Petite Polymath is a podcast of Britstone, and I am encouraged because feelings don't last forever. So I hope you all have a lovely weekend. Until next time.